Chapter Fourteen of *The Hall in the Grove* by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The tables turned. In some respects, that was a unique gathering in Doctor Monteith's handsome parlors. I am inclined to think it was the first attempt Centerville had ever made to unite the actually intellectual with what had hitherto been purely social. A carefully prepared program was presented, which interested many and astonished all moreover these persons who like mrs chester came with a vague idea of seeing certain young people gathered perhaps on benches in the dining-room and put through the process of examination to the end that others might see what commendable progress they had made and pat them on the cheek metaphorically at least saying good children you shall have a cake and an apple to take home a little after the industrial school style you understand were greatly mistaken there seemed to be no social lines drawn between the guests nothing to distinguish the circle from the friends invited to mingle with them unless indeed i accept a certain flash of intelligence passing between them as they met during the evening a sort of indescribable look and tone indicating oneness of feeling and cordial sympathy in regard to some subjects at least but these things were only noticed by the initiated Outwardly, it was merely a gathering of well-dressed, well-behaved people met to enjoy themselves. Caroline's appearance astonished no one but her mistress. She had indulged herself in a new dress this spring, of some silvery-gray material that fitted the light in her eyes and the color in her cheeks perfectly. It was made in so simple a style as to be almost striking, and yet was wonderfully becoming. She wore no ornament whatever, unless the mass of soft white lace about her throat could be called an ornament. Yes, I forget, there was a single white rose in her hair, and another at her throat, whose cool green leaves lay nestled among the folds of lace, and fitted the rest of the toilet well. As I said, Mrs. Chester was the only person whom this young woman in her holiday attire astonished. It was too simple and plain, after all, beside most of the others, to invite special attention, and the members of the circle were used to seeing her in something that was always neat and becoming. But Mrs. Chester had not known before how she would look outside of the plain dark calicoes and carefully made house aprons in which she daily went her round of work. She actually gazed after Caroline as she crossed the room, even wondering, for a bewildered second, who that graceful girl was, and the next she said, "'Well, really!' and tossed her head, and hardly knew what she thought. It must be confessed that James Ward astonished more people than Mrs. Chester. The fact is, no one had ever seen him dressed as he appeared that evening, nor had had an idea what a difference dress would make in him. His father, without seeming to be specially interested in what was going on, awoke one morning at the breakfast-table to ask some questions. What was this party at Dr. Monteith's that he had heard talk about? Who were to be there, and what was to be done? James was posted. Dr. Monteith took care that he should be most thoroughly posted as to all that was planned and much that was hoped. He explained somewhat in detail, and with an eagerness that could not escape notice. "'And you were invited?' was the next somewhat abrupt question, whereupon Joe laughed good-naturedly. "'He invited? Why, father, he is Dr. Monteith's right-hand man. Nothing can be done without him at the circle or anywhere. 
he and Paul will be running the whole thing before you know it. What nonsense, said James, not without a flush on his cheek. To his father he only gave a brief answer in the affirmative. Are you invited too? This to Joe. Well, sir, I have that honor, but I've made up my mind to have a pressing engagement somewhere else that evening. The quality are all to be out in full force, and I don't stand high enough in the literary world just yet to be quite ready to show off, so I mean to make off. The father smiled grimly, a smile that closed with a sigh. He was much more troubled over Joe than that good-hearted, foolish young man had any idea of. Nothing more had been said about the entertainment, but in the course of the day Mr. Ward handed James an order on the best tailor in the town to make his son as good a suit of clothes as could be made out of the best material in stock, and send the bill to him. What tailor would not have done his best to make the clothes good and the bill large after that? The final result exceeded even the father's expectations, both as to the amount of the bill and the changed appearance of his son. The one balanced the other, according to his view of it. Had he known what a tender feeling there was in James' heart over the thoughtfulness of that note, they would have been more than balanced. As it was, not even young Bennet himself came to the gathering in better attire, nor indeed carried himself better in it than did James Ward. Of course Paul Adams had no father to balance Taylor's bills, so he came in the clothes that he had worn for best until they were a trifle small in every way. Well for Paul that he had not yet reached the point where he cared greatly about this, or indeed gave it much thought. Besides, he was of that happy temper to whom a word of ridicule, such as would have flushed James Ward's face with rage, would only provoke laughter." It was his mother who shed the tears for that family. If he had but known it, she wept copiously over his coat the evening before, while she darned a small break, because she could not replace it with a new one, wept the next day as she starched and ironed his best shirt, because it was so old and so coarse. But the linen shone beautifully, and Paul whistled while he dressed, and whistled when he went away to the party." He presented a striking contrast to most of the guests, but of this he did not think at all. He had an important part to sustain in the evening's exercises, and this absorbed his attention. A word about the literary portion of that entertainment. Dr. Monteith's aim had been twofold, to explain in a detailed and interesting manner what had been accomplished by the circle, and to increase its prospective size. To Caroline had been assigned the task of preparing and reading a paper which should give her views of the lessons to be learned and the errors to be avoided by studying the greatness and weakness, the splendor and the meanness, the rise and downfall of the seven-hilled city. It had been discovered that this young woman possessed an accomplishment as rare as it was pleasant. She was a natural reader, clear-voiced, round-toned, sympathetic. Dr. Monteith had declared in confidence to his friend that it was a perfect rest to listen to her. As for Paul, the same watchful scholar had discovered that he had a peculiar talent for repeating striking and important events. He was able to forget the lapse of time and change of scene since those events had occurred, and give them as though it had been yesterday. He was able to forget something less easily forgotten, himself 
and give the story as though he had been present and seen and heard. Therefore certain vivid scenes in the history of Rome had been selected for him to tell the audience. Tell them exactly as though you were the only person who saw the act or heard the words, and it was not possible that any of us had as yet heard of the event. This was Dr. Monteith's direction, and he expected to have an entertainment worth listening to. All the more delightful, possibly, because Paul was not in the least aware that his talent in that direction was unusual. Besides these two central appointments, another that caused much more heart-throbbing was in contemplation. A careful list of questions had been papyrographed, and a card containing them was to be given to each guest, with the understanding that any question in the list could be asked of any member of the circle, said member having expected to answer if he could. An effort had been made to ask such questions as would bring out striking events and interesting details. The list was long. Not that it was supposed that one half or even one third of the questions would be asked, but for the purpose of allowing the guests to select that which most interested them, and also to prove that this was no prepared list of twenty or thirty questions, answers to which had been memorized in a few hours. Perhaps you can imagine what a Herculean task it had been to prepare this list of questions not only, but to prepare to answer them. It was long before the circle would give its united vote to any such plan. "'It will be just horrid,' one quite young member had declared. "'They will be absolutely certain to pick out the questions that we don't know. People always do. I might study up a few, but none of them would come to me, and I really think I am well enough known as a dunce now without proclaiming my fame in that line abroad.' Others less outspoken were yet inclined to be of like opinion, but after eager discussion, during which their president reminded them that the very fact of the list of questions being so long would make it the most probable thing in the world for all to fail on many of them, consent was at last obtained. Precisely at the hour named on the notes of invitation, the guests were called to order, and the exercises of the evening commenced another opportunity for Mrs. Chester's astonishment. "'Who would have supposed that she could read like that?' This was the lady's bewildered thought as she listened to the clear, full voice. That the paper read was really one of marked strength, Mrs. Chester was not sufficiently well read to know. But there were those in the audience who did, and who thanked God with full hearts that the Chautauqua Literary and Scientific Circle had given this earnest soul a chance." I will not stop to tell you in detail how well Paul Adams fulfilled his trust. Suffice it to say that there were those listening to him who, knowing absolutely nothing about the early history of Rome, were moved to indignation, and then almost to tears, over his simple yet graphic way of giving the details of certain startling events. But the crowning act in the evening's exercises was yet to come. It so happened that the list of questions suggested to young Butler the idea of having what he was pleased to term a little fun. He had not forgotten his own great, though foolish embarrassment, at being asked a question concerning the renowned old city, which at the time he was not ready to answer. Why should he not have the pleasure of witnessing the embarrassment of another? Paul Adams he considered too far beneath him to make an effort in that line interesting. He had thought of asking Caroline a few questions, 
but listening to her paper, and overhearing certain whispered comments by a scholar whom he knew was a judge of brains, he determined to level all his forces on James Ward, being, if the humiliating truth must be told, moved thereto by a certain feeling of annoyance over the fact that Miss Amy Allison still bestowed bewitching bows upon him whenever they chanced to meet. No sooner was the general exercise fairly opened, and by the way the audience was interested in it from the first, the questions having been selected and worded with such care as to provoke eager desire to know the answers, then Jack commenced his fire, levelled constantly at the head of James Ward. In vain did others, not in the circle, being able to see through his small design, try to avert the stream of questions into other channels. From every diversion he came back to James. There was little chance for any of the other members to distinguish themselves, save as some of Mrs. Chester's friends, in great curiosity, made several attempts on Caroline, attempts to which she promptly responded. It gradually became apparent, even to the dullest perception, that young Butler was resolved to give James Ward a thorough examination. Now it so happened that James, having occupied a very quiet background at most of the circles, was supposed to be only in a very limited sense acquainted with Merivale, while the actual truth was that, next to Paul Adams, no one had worked harder or mastered more of the facts in that volume than James. He was incited thereto first, because Paul Adams had taken hold of the book in such fierce fashion, resolved upon making its contents his own, and secondly, because his cheeks daily grew more ready to flush when he remembered the fact that it was the first book he had ever actually studied with all his heart. The little that he really knew made him bend over Merivale with a dogged determination to know at least all that one book could tell him. He was aware that he had not the actual genius of Paul Adams, but he knew that he had a better literal memory, and he battled with and conquered dates and names in a way which presently gave him pride. Since the list of questions had been made out, he had found it a very satisfactory way of testing his own knowledge, and he found, to his surprise and delight, that the answers were as familiar to him as though he had actually been present at Rome's triumphs and defeats, as Paul Adams seemed to have been by the familiar way in which he talked about them. From sitting erect, with a bright red spot burning on each indignant cheek, as the storm of questions and answers went on, Dr. Monteith gradually settled back in his chair, a look of composed amusement on his face. Jack Butler's small scheme had already failed. Why had not the young man sense enough to know it? If James Ward missed every question that was asked him after this, he had already shown sufficient knowledge of the history of Rome to stamp him as a student. Apparently, however, he had no idea of missing a question. His voice was steady, his face controlled, his whole manner assured and quiet, and Jack Butler, nettled exceedingly, beginning to wish that he had let this whole business alone, and not brought himself into such conspicuous relations with this hero of history, yet was actually too much embarrassed to beat a retreat, but continued his questioning, helped only by an occasional voice that was bent on giving Caroline a chance to distinguish herself. Gradually all other voices died away, and more than two-thirds of the list of questions had been composedly answered by young Ward. This would-be tormentor, who had actually become his helper, 
paused with flushed face and unquiet voice. "'I beg pardon,' he said. "'I seem to be monopolizing the entertainment. Don't let my interest in the subject keep you all quiet.' Dr. Monteith's answer was prompt and decisive. "'By no means, my dear young friend,' with possibly a slightly marked emphasis on the word young. "'It is true we had in no sense designed this for an evening of special examination, and our friend Ward has not been working for a diploma. Still, since it has progressed thus far, I beg that the examiner will kindly continue, at least, until the student makes a break. That is the way we used to do in the old-fashioned spelling school, you will remember.' I confess myself intensely interested in this very thoughtful and brilliant plan of yours, Mr. Butler. What say our friends? Shall the few remaining questions be asked until there is a failure? My friend the doctor here has engaged to be our umpire for the evening, and will promptly announce the slightest mistake. Long before this the greater number of the guests had entered into the spirit of the exercise, and the vote to continue was unanimous. Thus invited, there was nothing for the now exasperated examiner but to proceed, rushing at railroad speed over the remainder of the list, not one of which failed to receive an assured answer by the young man whom he had set out to mortify. It was a schoolboy scheme, and deserved to meet with a real schoolboy defeat. Therefore was Dr. Monteith rejoiced over the whole." especially when, with the last question and answer, the entire audience, circle included, broke into an involuntary burst of applause. "'Victory!' exclaimed Dr. Monteith, rising to his feet and holding out his hand to James Ward. "'My dear friend, I congratulate you on knowing more about the history of Rome than I ever expect to.' This frank statement produced bursts of laughter." formality and literature were alike at an end. Everybody was laughing and talking and shaking hands with young Ward, thus suddenly and most unexpectedly transformed into the hero of the evening. The dining-room doors were thrown open. Coffee and cakes and ices became the matters of special interest just then, and the pleased company broke into little groups to laugh and exclaim over the peculiarities of the entertainment and it chanced that, entirely by his own planning, the only discomfited person in the company was our immaculate and unsuperficial friend, Jack Butler. I shall have to confess that his discomforts were not even yet at an end. Dr. Monteith, feeling confident that his greatest fault was an overpowering self-esteem, sought an early opportunity to congratulate him on his tact in having given them an unexpected entertainment, and then proposed that the company be invited to select from the same list questions that they would like Jack himself to answer in his own way, thus giving them a chance to compare the different shades of thought which would be presented by different minds. In the painfully eager negative that poor Butler felt constrained to press in answer to this flattering invitation, every vestige of self-esteem vanished. End of chapter 14